Hey guys, welcome back to VS Energy's BMS podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Nick Taliska and Mark Sankey. So in today's podcast, we'll be discussing systems design, and that is kind of comparing when you look at a, a system, initial cost versus life cycle cost. And there's a lot of factors that come into this discussion, and there's probably a lot that we can continue talking about past this podcast. So if you hear anything and you you see our podcast posted anywhere, be sure to comment and say, let's maybe talk about this in our next episode. Um, but that's our goal for today's podcast. Just discuss initial costs versus life cycle costs in systems design. So I guess just to lead off when designing a system, obviously budget and cost require balance, but sometimes paying more upfront can lead to a lower total life cycle cost. And we'll be discussing this balance and giving insight from obviously our experts, uh, Mark and Nick, in today's episode. Beginning with project magnitude plays a factor, obviously. So, and I mean by project magnitude, I mean like, is this a, a $1 million project, $100,000 project? Uh, obviously a huge range in that. And maybe this decision of initial cost versus life cycle costs is more of a factor in a larger project magnitude. I don't know if you guys kind of want to chime in on that to start. Well, so I want to go back to one step back and looking at the cost of a detailed design. And I'll tell you that solid, complete design is well worth the investment. And we've seen plenty of BMS specs come out that are very nebulous, vague, unclear, and they result in higher first costs, more omissions, higher percentage of change orders and oftentimes cost overruns. So detailed design, that's just like hiring a good architect to uh, design your house, your building. And the BMS is a critical portion of the building that has a significant impact on the long-term cost of operation and performance of the building and deserves attention with a proper design. And that's just the, you know, the, the long and short of it. And then as far as, as, scalability and size of the project. I think we've seen some big changes over the last five to 10 years in scalability, especially with the rise of software as a service for some functionality that you find in BMS like dashboards, data storage, cloud storage, all those kinds of things that have made many features that were previously unavailable for smaller facilities more available and cost-effective. You know, Mark, I think that's an absolutely great point to to make going back to the the cost of design. Kind of, it fits right in, obviously, with the discussion. That adds to your initial cost, but could reduce uh, subsequent costs in the in the rest of the project from construction to operations, saying let's, if, we, if we pay a little bit more for a quality, thorough, well-engineered system, we can mitigate maybe a lot of rework or issues or omissions down the road, so potentially reduce the life cycle cost, if you would say. So let's go back and define what we talk about as the life cycle cost. All right. So life cycle cost is the total cost of ownership of the system. Mm -hmm. And that can be calculated either on a, a cash basis, on an after-tax basis, including uh, or taking credit for depreciation. Um, if there are cost savings attributable to the system, and Nick, this plays right into your wheelhouse where we have energy cost avoidance that can be subtracted out based on the performance of the system. All of those factors, uh, maintenance costs, upgrade, 
network security costs, all those things go into the lifecycle cost. Right. And it's important that we understand those costs occur for many are recurring costs and some are recurring revenues or credits on in terms of either it can be a utility rebate for the system it can be the energy cost avoidance it can be operations cost avoidance it can be productivity productivity improvement whether it's personal productivity whether it's operational productivity by providing stable environmental control for a process but it's important, and especially when, when you do life cycle costs, the easiest way to do it is just build yourself a timeline. And cash flow diagram. A cash flow diagram that shows the annual expected cash flows, whether they're before tax or after tax, the year they're expected to occur in, and then discounting them all to a present value mm-hmm. and using net present value analysis to assess the, particularly if you're doing uh, analysis of multiple projects against each other, or competitors or, you know, competing systems and evaluate them using net present value. So Mark is, is, is life cycle costing uh, a beneficial thing to do if you're only looking at one project, let's say it's either do this thing or, or do nothing and continue on as you were doing. Is there a benefit to looking at the life cycle cost of that one defined solution? Absolutely. There is, it, it is beneficial and here's why. Net present value is my and many people's most used analytical tool because if you use the correct internal rate of return, um, or you know, for evaluation or evaluation that says this is the number that I have to be able to make on my money, otherwise, I do nothing different. So, if I use that number for my discount rate and I put together a project that has a positive net present value, that net present value is the number you're ambivalent between doing the project and somebody giving you that pile of cash. So if I have a project that I apply my own internal rate of return, let's say, you know, Mark has to have pick a number 12% on his money or else he's going to leave it where it is. And I've put together a project using an internal rate of return of 12% and it comes out to have a hundred grand. That means I have to find something else that makes me more than my current internal rate of return and puts a hundred thousand bucks in my pocket, or I do this project. And the hundred thousand dollars would be your net present value. Be your net present value, correct. And so generally speaking, greater than zero is good or is favorable, but then you have to compare, like you said, uh, how good is each alternative? Right. And you can have a, you know, and that's why net present value is more beneficial than things like straight line payback. I can do a project to replace one light bulb in my house with LED and it has a 0.7 year straight line payback, but I can do a spray foam insulation in my attic that has a three year straight line payback. Which one will provide the higher net present value? Certainly the one that has the much, much larger energy impact, uh, in terms of absolute dollars, which would show up in the NPV. Now, I don't, maybe I'm looking at this wrong, but like when you, in your, in your explanation though, Mark, like to me, I'm taking that as like, everything's running as it should. Um, We want to do an energy project. And that's when you look at the NPV and you have to determine, is it going to be, you know, positive or negative? But like, what if for instance, um, your chiller plant, goes to crap, right? All your chillers are at the end of life. Um, you know, you know, 
some some things need to be changed downstream maybe or you what whatever you there might be a project right where you know your npv is going to be negative but it's just we'll say a cost of doing business right i mean i agree but especially in scenarios where you have uh competing technologies let's say we we you know have Nick Taliska on the project and he says, we have to use absorbers and here's why they're better. And Clayton's on the job and well, we want to use mag bearing chillers and Mark's on the job that says, we want to rebuild the existing chillers. And we have these three proposals, right? All with yeah. variable, varying costs, mm-hmm. all with varying costs of operation, all with varying maintenance costs. And yep. we need to compare them to each other. You construct a cash flow diagram for each one, bring them all back to net present value and It'll tell you, here's what we should do. I agree completely with that. Yes. And that's where you'll know what is the most economical decision to make right. per se off your MPV. Especially if you take them out to the timeline that includes, for instance, major overhauls or things like that, that may have to be done at 10 years. Yep. And you take your, your cash flow diagram out with the best information that you have available out 15, 20 years. And it'll tell you, here's here's what makes the most economic sense. So completely agree. And I'm trying, I think the way this podcast I'm trying to gear towards then is saying, okay, we understand that, right? As, a, as an engineer and an owner, um, funding availability right now may be low though. So like as an engineer, you can say, yeah, choosing a mag bearing chiller plant will have the the lowest net present value compared to overhauling the existing chillers or putting absorbers in, but the highest upfront cost. And may, maybe the owner um, can't afford that upfront cost. I don't know. It Like, where do you have to start making those decisions? Or is it not up to you? I guess maybe it's up to the, yeah, the, the funding entity, right? Correct. Is there a balance that you try to find or do you, would you base everything you do off of say NPV looking uh, at it? No, I, I, I understand the question. You absolutely need to in, be engaged with the client to be able to say, here's what we recommend in terms of doing a NPV or cash flow diagram analysis of competing technologies or options, uh, but it's definitely not for me to say, go borrow half a million dollars so you can do this project uh, because their time horizon may be such that, you know, that's the the other component that you have to put in is what's the customer, the client time horizon. We want to look at this over five years, for instance. Right. When you do that, it changes the NPV significantly, uh, especially if one has much, one of the projects has much higher upfront costs. Yep. So then looking at this in the context of, I believe the title of this episode, you're going to, is going to be like initial cost versus life cycle cost. Yeah. Okay. So the initial cost, so I can see how this can get, get a little confusing, but so initial cost is going to be a part of your life cycle cost analysis, right? That's one component. How much does it take to acquire those assets? And then you have the service and maintenance and benefits and all that that also have to be factored. And then net present value uh, techniques are used to bring that cash flow back so you can compare 
alternatives on equal footing. Is, is that accurate way to tie those three concepts together? Absolutely. I would, yeah, I would say so. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting because as, as a customer, you know, you know, we have to have some customer empathy and be able to put ourselves in the customer's shoes, regardless of what our own personal thought process is. And when you're told by the customer, well, we may only operate this plant for another four years. Okay. Um, do we care about how much this project adds to the sale value of the property or the salvage value of the property or whether it can be repurposed? No, that changes the whole metric, especially for projects that are capital intensive um, to one where basically now we have a four-year life cycle and we need to find ourselves a the least installed cost of operation or least installed cost to make this a viable project for the customer. Now the same customer comes back and says, this is a, this is a keystone facility for us. It'll be in operation for the next 10 years. That changes the whole dynamic where now we're looking at long-term quality of service issues, uh, long-term uh, maintenance issues, and those kinds of th things that may skew the project towards another option based on that longer time horizon. Yeah, it's interesting, Mark, because you, uh, at least my experience has been kind of the NPV analyses are, I would say, are less rigorous than, than a life cycle costing analysis. I would, you know, definitely you have to include, I guess, more of that time horizon because the, the longer that horizon goes out, then you're dealing with more things like maintenance, uh, replacement of parts, salvage value, things like that. And then one thing I think is often overlooked with life cycle cost analysis is uh, the degradation of performance over the time over time too, whether that's we're talking about energy cost savings, or you're talking about you know productivity or performance output. Uh, I do know that you know a lot of the, the solar projects I've seen do have you know a, a degradation factor. Yeah. You know, amply applied throughout because the, the cycle, the, the terms are long, mm -hmm. it's, you know, a known issue that obviously it degrades over time. This is, this is a, I think a great and an interesting conversation, but it may be a little bit more brief than we anticipated. I don't know. You guys can obviously chime in, but really like when, when you think of it as initial cost versus life cycle cost, um, you're as an engineer, then you're presenting the facts is it NPV or what have you um, to the owner? And it, and it really comes down to who's spending the money to say we, we would rather, you know, however they want it to go. If you give them three different options, right? Well, but, but let's look at the, the BMS system components and the um, mechanisms that we think add value. So we look at, BMS components and say, okay, we, we're going to design a BMS system. There are a number of factors that increase cost in a project, Yep. but each one of those, as we all know, adds some benefit. If we go out and design a project. There are relatively low cost uh, ads that you can build into a project that have higher performance. So each one of those has a marginal cost and mm -hmm. a marginal benefit. So the investment rule for 
ads like that is whenever the marginal, the net present value of the marginal benefit is greater than the net present value of the marginal cost, you do it. So I'm going to put in NIST calibrated sensors in all of our specs. Right. Why do I do that? Because it reduces commissioning costs, because it increases long-term stability, because it improves the uh, performance of the PID control loops, and it makes maintenance and operations more, uh, it simplifies maintenance and operations and even replacement. So you can make the compelling argument for those kinds of decisions all the way down the BMS line into why do I want to pay for spare capacity uh, designed into my control system that when I put it out to bid? Well, because it's never cheaper to buy than on bid day. You will never buy a control system cheaper right. than under competitive conditions. So if I want to buy a 20% extra system capacity, I put it in the base bid because if I plan to do an expansion in two years and I, or I need to do add one, two, three, four air handling units to my building, do I want the excess capacity now or do I want to ad hoc and pay the list price uh, one at a time over the next two years? See, so, but and I completely agree with all of that, but it seems like in my limited experience, you could call it that it doesn't happen so much. And it, I think that may be the challenge in saying, you know, people look at the only the initial cost and not necessarily the benefits as a, you know, as a life cycle of the system. Because, I mean, we I can, you know, rattle off a few jobs that we've come across just recently where we're experiencing attempting to lower the initial cost as much as possible. And now paying for it a little bit more in the life cycle. Yeah, I think that's the reason it's not maybe done so much if that's what you're saying, the life cycle cost analysis. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's because it's, it's, it's difficult to do. And, and when right. you think about, so, I mean, so let's say, what do you got? You know, four things that go into it. Your initial cost is the simplest thing to figure out, right? That's how Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. But you got your service cost. Mm-hmm. Now you're looking out over a horizon of, let's say, 10 years, 15 mm-hmm. years. Okay, you got other factors that need to go into that service cost, right? Mm-hmm. Are those prices going to escalate every year? Probably. Mm-hmm. How much? Will the service get more in year five? Will there be replacement costs? So it's, it's you know, and then the, then the operating costs and how sensitive is that to other things has to be considered too. So you said a minute ago, we're all, this would be a short episode, but I think we're just getting started. But I think so too. I mean, very good, very good. So, yeah. So listen, let's let's think of a, an example here. We we all have experience in building automation. Yeah. And think back to the days when everything was proprietary, mm-hmm. right? We have a system where we put it out for bid. It's proprietary. Uh, you know, the new building puts it up, put it out to bid. It's proprietary, and company uh, A wins the project on bid day and the, you know, the, the number in building automation is what's the cost per point. The cost per point is $300, right? The first change comes through and the cost per point is $2,500 and every subsequent change is $2,500. Why? Because competition has gone away. Right. Now comes the advent of open systems and we have, the same $250 cost per point on bid day 
and afterwards the cost per point may go up to $400, but it doesn't go up to $2,500. And if it ever does go up to $2,500, the cost to switch vendors has come down so dramatically that uh, that's what customers do. They'll switch suppliers, right? And uh, put a new workstation in and continue to reuse their, their legacy system. So when you look at life cycle costing, life cycle costing and those kinds of analyses and experiences are what drove the industry to open systems. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how this was going to tie back to the life cycle costing, but so that's but it. like to me then it it seems like decisions would be more heavily weighed at initial cost at that point. They were. Yeah. Well, no, like Back now. In the day. Oh, but, like now? Yeah. I mean, uh, like, I don't know. Maybe I don't have to worry so much now as a, as a building owner um, down the road what I want to do because you, like you said, it's every, every ad could be a new bid day as opposed to going back to your legacy provider that only uh, well, can do that. Well, we, we can all agree in theory that we're moving towards that level of open system, but we're but not there not, yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still mm -hmm. proprietary programming tools involved and those kinds of things. But, yep. um, yeah, we're moving in that direction where if, if anybody really tries to get greedy on bid day, well, then we can always just say we throw out all the bids. Yeah. We'll put this out, the you know, or, or even a, a proposal and yep. we'll go back out. And we've put seen many bid. projects where that happens, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it makes me think too when you start talking about that, Mark, about one thing that really doesn't get factored into the life cycle cost analysis and it's difficult to is is uh technology obsolescence let's say you know things are moving really quick so to do a life cycle cost analysis on a building management system for 20 years seems a little long right does does 10 seem a little long these years no uh you know i i, I don't know i mean what what's going to come along you know we've we've talked before about you know, sensorless pumping applications and phase mm -hmm. change materials and who knows what's coming on. And right, it's coming right. on pretty quick. But I think the important thing is, is that you need to get things on an even footing. And that really, you know, we talked about using life cycle cost analysis for a single project. And that can be helpful to let you know, wow, this is what this thing is going to cost me, you know, but then also comparing it with other alternatives, you know, that can get, that can get very rigorous and we haven't even gotten into deterministic models versus probabilistic models, right? So just assuming like a single point for, you know, cost of service increase or inflation, uh, energy rates, you know, what they'll do. But then a probabilistic uh, approach would, you know, include some elements of randomness and not just have a single point value, but a range of values. And then you're looking at more of a simulation to say, well, Okay, if I live this life 10,000 times, what would my life cycle cost really be, you know, on average? So you can get very rigorous with this. And it's very different than a straight line payback, which would be the simplest method. I think we would all agree on evaluating the economics of a project. I, I agree with you, Nick. Um, the, there are, uh, depending on usually the magnitude of the project and the life cycle, the methodologies or, or of any financial analysis can go much deeper than the 
you know, NPV is not uh, simplistic analysis, but it's it's not that difficult. But right. once you get into uh, variable risk factors, and especially things that are outside, you know, that are exogenous variables we have no control over, that we're taking a guess at, then you have actually, you know, on very large projects, mechanisms where um, clients will try and hedge their utility costs to try and maintain that uh, utility cost per unit at a more stable rate, um, you know, long-term equipment maintenance contracts to be able to assure the operation of equipment, even in the event of a catastrophic failure. So, I mean, the the level of analysis is certainly related to the magnitude of the project. Uh, you know, when we're, we're talking about constructing a new um, 50 megawatt or 150 megawatt cogen plant, the level of financial analysis is much different than if we're doing a you know a two million dollar BMS system. But it, it really depends on what the customers' needs are. Oh, totally. And I think you can really, you can, you know, leverage or get the most out of a life cycle cost analysis because you do have to look out into the future and kind of know, okay, this is what we agreed on in year five, our service cost should be X or whatever, or our energy cost. So like you were saying, it kind of can help frame the constraints that everybody's working under. So you can make those decisions like, you know, energy rate control or, or hedging, like you said, or looking out there to know where you need to control to, to, you know, essentially, yeah, it's like, I guess it's a form of an OPR, maybe an sure. owner's project requirements. That's, these are the terms of the project and it's just long-term. So I don't want to ask uh, a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, but wouldn't like, say you're comparing three different options and you're worried about your energy costs. Wouldn't that be ubiquitous throughout though? Like I know it matters, but like, should it or should well, it not no, much no, change no, no, the NPV? No. So each project may have, let's just pick a different, uh, it doesn't matter. Efficiencies. They'll have different efficiencies. So in yeah. that case, we're going to use some sensitivity analysis and say, mm -hmm. let's see what the impact is on each of the three projects based on uh, more dramatic changes in yep. uh, energy rate. Mm -hmm. And it can certainly affect, you know, all three options at different rates based on their energy efficiency or resulting energy co uh, cost avoidance or any of that thing. Right? Sure. My absorber recommendation will be a different <laughs> profile for your maglev. <laughs> <laughs> this is very true. Yeah, but that's no, that's an interesting question because it does point out how so many of these things in a life cycle cost analysis can really you know, you can look at initial cost and be like, well, this has got to be a no brainer. Oh, well, let's look at the service cost. Well, okay. That's different. yeah. That's let's exactly what I'm trying to you know, disposal costs. Yeah. And you can be like, Whoa, yeah. Energy, you know, we're going to use a lot of energy, but we're saving a lot of other money over here and yep, those decisions have to be made. But yeah. And those are the kind of things I'm trying to sift through or we're trying to sift through in this episode, I think is just to, to have that, I don't know, discussion. And it maybe if some, somebody tuning in didn't think about whatever portion of this NPV discussion we're having. So, but I mean, that, that's like a, a spot on example. Nick is saying, oh, well, maintenance for my absorber is going to cost way more than maintenance for my um, 
mag bearing chiller and maybe my absorber is way cheaper, but I didn't think about the maintenance required for it. So, you know, or what have you. Yeah. And, and like you said, so those numbers have got to be obviously looked at and researched and, and thought about. So it is more time consuming to do the life cycle approach. Uh, and then, like I said, that's just picking pretty much single point values for, you know, inflation. And, and you could even pick a single point value for every year, I guess, as far as degradation of energy performance. But uh, if you get into more like establishing a range, you know, of variables that could happen every year, then, you know, rates may go up, you know, between, you know, they're down 2% or up 7% in a year or something. And you kind of simulate that, then that's a whole different rigor and uh, should theoretically get you more accurate results. See, I wish that, oh, go ahead, sorry. I was just gonna say, it's only as good as what you put in too. Yeah, well, I wish it was a little bit less time consuming to do that so I could, you know, lay that out when I was deciding what kind of vehicle I wanted to buy. Uh, (laughs) Because it falls right into that too, you know, upfront cost versus maintenance cost versus repair cost and- That's a great example. You know what I mean? I think that's, in layman's terms, boils down to maybe i'm gonna be buying a new car do i want a honda or a volkswagen um maybe my volkswagen's cheaper to buy now but it requires a lot more maintenance and parts could be a lot more as compared to my honda i don't know absolutely and even labor costs i, I yeah. might be different among you know domestic or yep. i know you gave two foreign examples there but yeah 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 or yeah chevy or volkswagen right i mean dodge has the highest overall quality rating of all so why are we why isn't dodge in this (laughs) if it was if i was saying i'm going to be buying a diesel truck it would be you're right (laughs) well then again you know us mark we're going to ask well how are you defining quality oh yeah jd power term thrown around very liberally (laughs) jd power JD Power. You know what's what's the oil change interval on a Dodge versus a Power Stroke? And how much is well, that oil going to cost? I mean, cost? I'm not even yeah. talking about. You know, Dodge was the only car company ever, and I'm telling you this from personal experience because I bought a 2015 Dodge to offer a lifetime warranty as long as you own the vehicle. Anything breaks, they fix it. That's impressive. Yeah, especially in a car that you can that they expect you to beat the snot out of. Okay, so there's a good example that could tie back to facilities, right? Like warranties, yeah. right? So the exactly. warranty really isn't worth all that it could. you think it could be if you're using it a lot and every time you're out of a car for seven days, right? And it disrupts your life and you have to go get something. So a lot of that can be also looked at with parts replacements and maintenance, right? I mean, not only just how many, how often you, what will you replace key parts on, you know, your, your co-gen, but uh, how expensive are those parts and what is the availability? So yeah. Like your downtime. Yeah. So this doesn't go back to the Dodge and the lifetime warranty, but right. You're saying something could have a great warranty, but if they're crappy and they're hard (laughs) and parts are hard to get and great, you don't have to pay for it to get repaired, but you're down for three days. Well, it's getting fixed. It might not be worth the warranty. Sure. No. Which is the same for everything. Yeah. Anything you got to definitely have to consider that. But you, I think the point with your, your, your car example, Clayton, which is interesting, you can, you can see how much time you could really spend if you're looking to go down through all the major componentry. Yeah. Here all the features and you know, what could go wrong? What's it going to cost you? So yeah, consider that in a 
well, that's a good discussion too. A new facility versus you know a project in a, an existing facility. Very different things to look at. Yeah. So I I have to go back and uh, re inject one more or a couple more items into this. We've done a few projects in the last five years where the carbon footprint impact and or water impact have tipped the scales for one technology or one system versus another. And in those cases, the carbon footprint was not monetized, nor was the water impact. It was strictly hmm. analysis of the projects based on impact on carbon footprint or impact on water consumption. So although it might have had a higher uh, energy uh, impact, uh, a negative energy impact. The water impact was positive and therefore they did the project. So Nick or Clayton, what do you think about that? I think uh, as a maybe a deep thinking individual on some of these topics, I think the carbon to me, I, I'm not saying water is not important, but the carbon to me is a big one to, I feel like not a lot of people take that into account as a decision-making tool. And for you, I could run down the list of things that look great on paper or at the surface, but the carbon impact is, is horrible as opposed to maybe taking the route that seems like you maybe do use more energy, but uh, the carbon footprint is less. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, makes and sense I, to me. I think as, as we move forward in, in uh, the world, I think that's, that should be, and probably will become more of a decision, a, a scale tipping decision point. You know, people will quantify that more. Yeah. And I think the, the point here might be, it's uh you know, this is this is customer driven. A lot of these metrics and hurdles and how they look at a project they're going to be investing in. And you do hear a lot in, you know, very broad circles that about, you know, new triple bottom lines for public companies and reporting. Right. Uh, and the whole, you know, ESG movement. So it, it is, it does matter. And I think it's interesting, Mark, you said like neither was quantified uh, in terms of a dollar value. Yeah, monetized. Yes. Right, right. So it was that yeah. was clearly uh, an environmental cost, even if cost is just defined in units of you know. Yeah, whether it's in gallons, but m gallons of water, or you know, tons of carbon, or whatever it is. You're right. So that, in essence, really, you cannot bring back to a net present value. At least those constituents, but. I would think life cycle cost analysis would be one of the, maybe the only type of, you know, method of evaluating projects that would necessarily include the environmental impact like that. But I mean, I may change my mind on that, but <laughs> I would think that would, life cycle costing being very comprehensive would definitely incorporate those things where the other obviously dollar based would not. Uh, yeah, that one I, I could completely go off on a tangent on, and I probably shouldn't. But the floor is yours, Clayton. Well, no, I mean, you just you know, if you're if you're talking about those factors, it's where do, where does it where do you start? Um, where does that data originate, though? Is it the point of manufacture of said products you're going to implement into your facility? 
Um, or I once it's installed, custody is that deep at this point. But I think no, it's, it's not. Not. I agree completely. But um, could be. You know, for some things, I feel like it should be, as we consider uh, paths. We are so far off in the weeds. It's not funny. <laughs> I don't think so. These are all things that you know. It's it's life cycle cost analysis. So at some point, these things will have to be quantified, right? Yeah. No. No. I agree with that what completely. Well, I think there's a difference between quantified and monetized. Yes. Yes, I agree with that too. In terms of of currency i mean that's that's what i mean it's gonna have to be if you're gonna compare them equally or even roll them up yeah because that's the fallacy here mark i think that you have this project maybe i wasn't listening close enough when you were talking but what how did the final decision like was the the monetary aspect in project a superior to project b but then they looked and said well project b though we save a lot more water yep so, so the, to me, the, the what's the point of the other stuff? Uh, dollars. Uh, Again, I'm just talking. Nick, Nick I, I I completely concur. Um, yeah, I completely concur. What is the point of the other stuff? And one of them, you know, oh, we'll make our 2025 water goal with this one project, and you know, so it needs to get done. Well, they probably could have saved a lot of money on the other stuff, figuring out what costs would be. Exactly. Exactly. But so, you know, but I mean, that, that can be workable, but I think it does need to be agreed. Like, how are we going to make this decision? Uh, right. Yeah, it's interesting. But I, I certainly think, Clayton, you're going to see more of that. Oh, yeah. I would agree completely. And in, in any type of industry, if you wanted to call that for, uh, you know, as we decide what projects are going to be moving forward or not that will that'll be a huge part of it i don't disagree um hmm so where do we want to take it from here gentlemen well i think i think if i have a a, a message in here that you know carrying forward that building owners especially uh and and A&Es that design specify uh, bms systems you know, there's plenty of owners out there who view controls as something you can buy off Amazon or, you know, one page spec, give me right. a building management system for this. Mm-hmm. That's no knock of Amazon because I'm a guy where yeah. 75% of everything I shop for is I buy on Amazon. Controls, although the perception may be that, especially with open systems, they can be viewed as a commodity, they are far from it. And the, the, significance of building an OPR, whether it's specific only to the control system or a building in its entirety that clearly defines the expectations of what kind of data you want out of the control system, how it will be managed, how, uh, you know, whether it will be software as a service, whether there's security requirement, having it in-house and carefully specifying control system, taking into consideration the marginal benefit of higher quality instrumentation, whether it's appropriate and uh, an eye towards managing future costs by putting in the uh, request for proposal or bid documentation specifics regarding unit pricing, future unit pricing, uh, five-year look ahead for maintenance agreements and those kinds of things all help manage costs. And when you take all those, put all the vendors on an equal footing, and then do a net present value analysis, 
you're comparing apples to apples in terms of uh, what you get for your first investment and what the cost may be, what the net present values are from each individual vendor. Interesting. Mark, have you ever seen like life cycle cost results uh, as part of an owner's project requirements? No. That, but, but uh, you know, that, Nick, I would say is not necessarily for the owner to say, I would want to see an NPV analysis, but rather something we would put forward and say, we'll do an NPV analysis on competitive bidders, for instance. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring this down to maybe more, more relatable terms, though, again, for our listeners that may not have a whole boatload of experience you know, in the controls world, you know, to me, if I was to break this down really simplistically though, like you have an owner that doesn't know anything about computers, right? And they're like, okay, maybe I want to buy a Lenovo or a Dell or um, a MacBook. I don't know. And I don't know maybe what a more low end brand is, but like, it could be hard to convince them one way or like, they might say, oh, this Lenovo is really expensive. Why not get the uh, cheaper brand? I can still surf the internet and do my Excel and whatever. You see where I'm trying to go with this? As in like saying to somebody that doesn't know a whole lot about what they're getting or what they need or want. I don't know. it. Well, I understand I, what you're saying, Clayton, but I think it's incumbent on the designers to be forthright and explain the differences between maybe not exact technologies, but why did, well, you know, why did, why, why should we buy the Lenovo? Well, for starters, it has a solid state drive. So right. that technology means that you don't have to worry about rotating equipment inside mm-hmm. your computer. That mm-hmm. if you drop the thing, it crashes. Right. I mean, so it's incumbent upon the designers, the consultants to be able to effectively describe the differences so that there can be an evaluation. I like that. Yeah. So then what, you know, again, you may be comparing that as an initial cost. Yes. The Lenovo is going to have a higher initial cost, but looking at the st- the data about it, it's worth it. So they can make that decision based off right. of facts and not just price. Marginal benefits greater than the marginal cost. Yeah. Okay. Now well, all comes back to it again. <laughs> Sometimes that analysis can be tough. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Right. A, a personal story on it. It's the first time in my life I'm in between boots. I just I don't know what happened, but you know, blew a sole off one, and oh, I, I know. So I've been I've been researching boots, right? And yeah. I, so, and I okay. want a pair of American. So what did what did your research show you? Red Winger Chippewa. Expensive. Yeah. But they're very expensive. If I want to get a pair of Chippewa boots like I had once when I was younger and they last me like 20 years, yeah, you might be spending 300 bucks. Are you, are you, uh, these work boots? So are they throw away every year or are they, these are my long term hiking boots, you know, that I'll wear probably for the next 20 years? Well, I, I'm not, I don't want to get a universal. So I'm looking at like two pairs, probably, possibly three, you know, before the end of the year. Just, you know, I want obviously a composite toe one I can yep. do out in the field with. Mm-hmm. Then I do want a waterproof type of hiking. Uh, and that's probably what I need. I don't need a steel toe necessarily. So 
Uh, I probably don't even need a composite tub, but I think we're getting a little off track here. So I did a tremendous amount of research and I'm comparing these companies, <laughs> Carolina, Chippewa, Dan, yeah, yeah, yeah. Red Wing, blah, blah, blah. I'm going through it. And I finally decided like, you know, I'm like, well, I'm worth a pair of $300 boots, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. I'm not a cowboy. I don't live in my boots, you know, 24 hours a day. And I decided like, you know, $160 pair was probably good enough. And it, uh, hopefully I'll get more than a year out of it, but our hearts. Yeah. So, you know, with quality going down too, I mean, don't even get me started on a pair of jeans. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. about a pair of jeans was five, six, seven years ago. And I'm, I'm at the point where I can't even wear jeans. I, they're, you know, they look like rags. So I have to buy them. And oh man, I know Amazon doesn't sponsor this podcast, but <laughs> maybe a lot of stuff. I mean, every day I got a pair of jeans being flopped in my garage and I, poke my finger through the plastic bag and I go, it's this is a stretchy material. No nope, like sweatpants that look like right. jeans. I go, these are gonna last a week. <laughs> right. Back they go. Hey, but it all comes back to the podcast in it's a way like, as a no, you're right. But as a as a consumer of anything, there's a lot of uh, available options and a lot of things you have to consider and price and quality and where do you decide what is the right thing. And sometimes maybe it, you don't have to make the decision because your budget is limited on an upfront cost. Like you might say, oh, I don't, I won't pay more than $40 per pair of jeans, no matter what, even if the $80 pair of jeans will last four times longer. You know what I mean? So, but you're totally right. And that was the decision I finally came down to. And there was a point with the amount of data input you may need to make a decision and I, I finally came to the conclusion of that. It's not worth me really spending as much time as I'm going down to research a pair of work boots. Right. Buy the boots and go from there. And yeah. go from there. Yeah. I've got other things I should be spending my time on. So, and the same can be said, but like, you know, we talked about scale and magnitude of the project. Yeah. I think it's different if you're looking at a relatively small investment compared to. Yeah. Right investment you might be living with with 15 years and that will further chart your course from there yeah that is time well spent yes yeah yep nope that brings a good way to bring it back to the discussion as well it does come down to scale and magnitude but yeah i don't know i'm just trying to again the whole podcast is just kind of discussing what goes into this this thought of you know initial cost versus life cycle sauce cost and yeah the jeans is a good one too I don't. I will never pay more than forty dollars per pair of jeans. I don't care if the hundred dollar pair of jeans will last ten times longer. I just can't. Pay, you know what I mean? I don't well, know. Carhartt jeans buying are jeans fifty bucks and they're worth it. What's that, Mark? Carhartt jeans are fifty bucks and they're worth it. Oh, Carhartt. We're not sponsored by Carhartt. Anybody listening? Should be, but though, maybe we should be. A pair of Carhartt boots. I've got <laughs> expecting tomorrow. Oh man! Oh, let me. You will be nothing but happy with them. I'm telling you. I have only three kinds of boots. Carhartt is my, I wear work boots every single day because I have had foot surgery and some other things. So I, I don't wear sneakers for anything. Carhartt boots every day. I hunt in Danner boots. And when the weather's crappy, I wear muck boots. Mm. But that's it. You know, and I, I've, I've had many, many other boots from Herman's and, you know, everything. Timberlands back when they were, you know, very good boots. And um, I don't know, I've had great success with Carhartts. And 
they're one of the only boots you can still get resold. I have a set of Carhartt boots and get it resold right now. See, look at that. that. Again, it go your life cycle cost of your boot. Yeah. You can resole it as opposed to getting a new one. So. I remember when Carhartt, it seemed like they sold just jacket in that same right. tan deer color and everybody had them, right? It's they get amazing. the job done. Absolutely. There's actually a store near here, Nick, where if you take your old Carhartt jacket in, like I've got some, you know, old Carhartt jackets, they'll give you a new one. So, oh, and they resell it. So it's like a secondhand store because young people nowadays, they want a Carhartt that looks like they've been working for 20 years. Right. <laughs> and, uh, exactly. They, they sell the old Carhartt jackets for as much or more than a new one. And oh my gosh. the last four or five jackets that I've had, my, my granddaughters, my son, my stepson have all, they had their hand out waiting for the jacket or the vest. Wow. I yeah, I, I would never bring myself to buy a used Carhartt like that. So no, you're, you're telling me the Carhartt that I like spilled oil on and dragged myself across a stone driveway with under my truck is sought after by some? Absolutely. <laughs> Even more so now. I guess so, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'll keep doing what I'm doing it's then. Unreal. Good. I mean, I have Carhartts that are barely whole held together and those are like the at the perfect level of dishevelment or whatever you want to wear of wear well yeah so to drag us out of the weeds yeah right to wrap this podcast up do you guys have anything else you want to add to the discussion in the bms realm for this I would say that our listeners probably do wear boots and jeans and jackets. So I, I think, think it was it's staying in. It was a great discussion on that. Well, it, it, from my perspective, the you know just like a, an automobile, BMS is a significant capital investment that yep. you expect significant from performance from. Yep. So doing a life cycle analysis and spending the time. I mean, maybe not. Uh, a little more time than on boots, but doing the time, uh, putting in the time to do a cash flow analysis, mm -hmm. uh, life cycle cost analysis for BMS is a worthy uh, expenditure of effort because it will shed light on things that you may not have considered. It'll make you think about it. What are the maintenance costs? What are the replacement costs? What are the upgrade costs? What are the light licensing costs? Mm -hmm. uh, all those things that go into a BMS during its life that you need to be cognizant of pay for yep. and then what are the net benefits that you expect out of it and it really makes you think am i making the right decision and then ultimately you can choose to go another way but at least you'll know yeah uh, you know mm -hmm. what the true true costs and the benefits are it's more than just the, the cost of installation and and it's you know not yeah. Just bid day. Yeah. That's it's not right. just bid day. Exactly. So, and I, again, we covered a lot of things that go into that decision and thought process. And I don't know. I had a lot of fun this podcast. Um, Same here. <laughs> I think with that being said, though, guys, we'll, we'll wrap up the discussion. So, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. This was a really fun BMS podcast. Sorry it took us so long to get another BMS podcast out. We're going to try to keep on getting these out regularly for you guys. And our next episode will actually kind of, it fits right in with this discussion. It's constructability versus maintainability. So should be another uh, 
you know, broad discussion, a lot of fun to have. So stay tuned for that one. And for more information on us, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, or the internet, www.vsenergy.us or www.appliedfacilityscience.com. So thanks a lot, guys. Have a great day.